2: Welcome to The Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to The Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss conscious capitalism, transformational leadership lessons, and how to use win-win thinking to create breakthroughs in your business with Whole Foods co-founder and CEO, John Mackey. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life." If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we shared powerful strategies for dealing with uncertainty, some of the most important tools for making better decisions, and how to get more flexibility in your life with returning guest, Josh Kaufman. Now, for our interview with John. John Mackey is the CEO and co-founder of Whole Foods Market, co-founder of the nonprofit Conscious Capitalism, Inc., and co-author of the best-selling book, Conscious Capitalism. Under his leadership, Whole Foods has grown to be a $13 billion Fortune 500 company, John's skills as CEO have been recognized by Ernst & Young, Barron, Fortune, and many more outlets. He's recently co-authored another conscious business book, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business. John, welcome to The Science of Success. Hey, Matt.
3: Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here talking with you.
2: Well, we are super excited to have you on the show today. Conscious Capitalism has been on my bookshelf for a long time, and it's a book that's really shaped a lot of my thinking about the world and the thinking of many of my close business associates as well. One of the themes from conscious capitalism that really to me is a transformative idea that I think is really misunderstood in many ways in today's world is this notion that business in and of itself is a social good. It's something that's inherently good. It's something that creates value that does good in the world. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Well,
3: I have a very strong perspective on it. I think Business is the greatest creator of value in the world. It is business and capitalism that has literally, in the last 250 years, lifted humanity out of the dirt. If you go back 250 years ago, 85% of everyone alive on the planet Earth lived on less than $1 a day. Think about that. 94% lived on less than $2 a day. And that's for in today's dollars. The average lifespan was 30. Illiteracy rates were over 90%. Capitalism's completely changed that. And it's been business, of course, is what it's business freely creating, innovating, and trading with each other that has allowed humanity to make such tremendous progress. So, business is inherently good because it's based on voluntary exchange. No one has to trade with anybody else. If you don't like the terms of the deal, don't make the deal, don't make the trade. And competition breaks up monopolies, and innovation breaks up monopolies over time. And the result is a continuous improvement in society. So business hasn't done it by itself, obviously. Science, good government, there's a lot of factors that have led to human progress, but business is inherently good and it's been the major driver of it.
2: And you, with everything that you've done and all that you've built, and even in conscious capitalism, you really take the core framework of capitalism and even expand it beyond what its traditional kind of roots and structure look like. But even at its core, if you're not Necessarily in a business that is as pro social as something like, let's say, a Whole Foods, even just the act of creating jobs and investing in the economy and making capital improvements, all of those things are hugely beneficial for everyone, raising the standard of living in a massive way. As you said, I mean, those are tremendously valuable to our entire society.
3: They are. Intellectuals have never liked merchants. So this is not new news here. The intellectual class has always look down on commerce as sort of, you know, dirty tradesman type of work. Noble people would never engage in trade. It's always been sort of something that's been looked down upon. And yet business is fundamentally good because it creates value for other people. I mean, that's what it does. It comes up with unique ways to give people what they want. And I want to put it underscore what they want as opposed to what they need. Because the assumption of business is people are the best judges for what they need and what they want. And business provides that. So they can provide things that maybe aren't good for people, but that's what people want. So it sets up a paradox there a little bit. But it creates value for people. It creates value for customers. And that's how business succeeds. If it doesn't create value for people, then people don't vote for it with their pocketbooks. If people don't like Whole Foods market, if they think it's too expensive or our quality is not good enough, then they shop at our competitors. And in fact, most people don't like Whole Foods. The reality is we have about a 3% market share. So most people don't shop at Whole Foods. I shop there only occasionally. And yet we've got about a $20 billion business now because enough people shop in our small little niche to let us be successful on a large scale. But business doesn't just create value for customers. It creates value for all the employees. Again, no one's forced to work for any particular company. They do so because it's the best job they can find at that particular time that meets their desire for employment, their skill set, with a pay that they may not be completely happy with, but it's the best pay they can find in the competitive marketplace, or they go find another job. So, business does create jobs. I mean, Whole Foods is, we've created 100,000 jobs from zero. In the last 40 years, we have 100,000 people working for the company now. It creates value for suppliers, right? Because Whole Foods has about 10,000 suppliers that we do business with, all these local producers all over the country, all over the world, really. And they're not forced to trade with us. They trade with us because we're creating value for them and they're creating value for us. It's a win win. It creates value for investors. Business people invest in a company like Whole Foods. And if the company prospers and succeeds and they get a return on that capital, they get a return on their investment, but also businesses create value for the communities they're in. Not only because they create value for customers and employees through jobs and suppliers through trading with them, but they create value because they are oftentimes paying a lot of taxes to the cities and communities and states, as well as the country that they're part of. They also tend to be philanthropic. They give a percentage or a certain amount of their money to local communities or larger communities that they're part of. So business is this great value creator. In fact, I would argue business creates far more value than all the governments and all the nonprofits combined. Not to say that governments and nonprofits don't create value too. It's just that they're ultimately dependent upon business because the tax money ultimately comes from business And nonprofit donations ultimately come from business as well, either business or the people the business employs. So I do think business is obviously not perfect. I wouldn't have written a book called Conscious Capitalism. I say business is good and we can make it more conscious and we can make it better. And so that book is dedicated to that proposition.
2: And I couldn't agree more with that perspective and the idea that both of those pieces of that statement are critical. Business is good and it can always be improved. It can always be made better. And in many ways, you championing this idea of stakeholder theory, this notion that businesses can and should create value, not just for their investors and their shareholders, but for everyone that's a stakeholder, the the community, employees, et cetera, that's such a critical concept and yet many people misunderstand some of the fundamental underpinnings of that. What do people get wrong when they think about stakeholder theory?
3: That's such a good question. The main problem people have is from very early age, we take on a win-lose Framework of the world, that sports are that way, games are that way. We're always in competition, whether in school, academia, and this idea that if you're winning, somebody else is losing. And that's, of course, one of the big criticisms about business. that is sort of a winner take all, win lose. Somebody's getting rich, so somebody else is getting poor. That's very powerfully set in most people's consciousness, this idea of somebody's winning and somebody else is losing. they're going to be one, Champion in sports, so then everybody else is a loser. But business isn't that way. In business, because it's based on voluntary exchange and it's creating value voluntarily for customers, employees, suppliers, investors, and communities that they're part of, business is inherently a win 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 game. It's about creating value for all of these. And I suppose in stakeholder theory, And I really got this many, many years ago, early on. I'm very fortunate that I learned this lesson, but I learned it deeper as time went by, that basically all the major stakeholders are interdependent on one another, and what I began to realize is that you don't manage the business in terms of trade-offs. So, okay, if I'm going to pay more, then that means there's going to be less profits made, or we're going to have to raise prices for customers. It's not that there's not these connections between those. It's just that you begin to strategize and think about the business differently. How do we simultaneously create value for all of them? How do we optimize the larger system that all these stakeholders are part of? So stakeholder management, in a way, is seeing that they're connected together. And then you begin to come up with strategies where they all can simultaneously win. So I always say that if you come up with strategies where one of the stakeholders is losing, it's a bad strategy. You should throw it out and go back to the drawing board. You haven't been imaginative enough. You haven't been creative enough. There actually is a win, win, win that you have to figure out so that all the stakeholders are winning. And this is particularly relevant. I don't want to get into politics in this incredibly polarized time that we're living in. I will say, though, that Once you adopt a win-win-win framework, it can become a complete ethical system. You can think about every interaction you have with everyone. You ask, how do I make sure Matt is winning here? And how do I make sure that I'm also winning? How do we both win? So I'm not looking in my interactions with people for somebody else to be put down, for somebody else to be lessened, for somebody else to lose. I'm trying to figure out how to serve them so they win. And as they win, I also win that we're winning together. And that is really what, once you have this framework, you see that what America needs right now is to adopt a win-win-win philosophy. We have all of this win-lose struggle going on, where one set of values is trying to win at the expense of the other values. And this tension exists all through the society right now. So you particularly see it in politics. You have these two parties that hate each other and want the other one to lose. And there's no compromise, there's no working together, and it's just trying to vanquish the other side. And so in the book, we have a chapter called Find Win-Win-Win Solutions. How do we begin to think differently so that we create solutions where everybody's winning? How do we create a win-win-win society? I know you can create win-win-win businesses because I've done it, but can you create win-win-win societies? Absolutely believe you can. Hence, one of the reasons we wrote Conscious Leadership. We need conscious leaders everywhere. We need them in business. We need them in education. We need them in politics. We need them in the nonprofit sector. We need them in government. We need them everywhere.
2: So well said. And I couldn't agree with you more. Even the example you gave a moment ago about how the standard of living has increased exponentially in the last 250 years is a perfect illustration of the idea that the pie, especially economic, but really more broadly than that, the pie is not a finite amount of resources that are being distributed to winners and losers. If you grow the whole pie, the entire society benefits. And that's something that isn't intuitive and isn't easy to understand. And really, especially in today's culture, today's world where it's so polarized, it almost goes against our innate gut feeling, but it's really fundamental to understanding not only the power of capitalism and conscious capitalism, but the power of, as you said, conscious leadership across a huge array of social issues and challenges.
3: It's really, really true, Matt. I mean, a great example of that is the polarization many people feel towards wealthy people. So, and that comes from this idea that there's this fixed pie. So, if Jeff Bezos is a very wealthy man, richest man in the world, then he's got a bigger piece of the pie than he deserves. Or Bill Gates has that or Warren Buffett has that or Elon Musk has that. These entrepreneurs that have created tremendous value in the world. I mean, think how much better our lives are today because these entrepreneurs are what they've created and they've created their wealth. They didn't steal it. They created their wealth by creating value for other people who voluntarily exchanged with them. And, of course, they're the success stories. Not every business succeeds. Not everyone becomes wealthy. Not every entrepreneur becomes wealthy. But the wealthiest entrepreneurs are actually the ones that have created the most value. They didn't steal it. And I think that's one of the myths that's out there, that somehow or another they got wealthy because they exploited the workers, or they ripped off the consumers, or they cheated their suppliers, or they've wrecked the environment. This whole idea that success comes at somebody else's expense is very deep in that win-lose framework that people are very reluctant to let go of. And yet, the pie is growing. It's grown tremendously. The average GDP per capita in the last 250 years has grown about 50x. And then not just a few people. I mean, when I said that 200 years ago, 85% of everyone alive lived on less than a dollar a day. Today, that's under 10%. It's about 8%. It's 8% too high that's a lot better than 85%. And we will probably wipe out poverty on this planet before the 21st century is over. I mean, I really do believe that's almost a certainty, provided we maintain peace and maintain reasonably free enterprise and innovation. We will innovate and create more and more prosperity and lift the remaining people out of poverty.
2: A great perspective. And I think we're very aligned about this notion that capitalism has room for improvement, but is tremendously the most historically validated and valuable system for banishing poverty from planet Earth, basically, if you really look at the historical record.
3: It's not perfect, and that's what upsets people. That's right. It's not perfect because human beings aren't perfect. There are greedy people, and there are selfish people, but they're not just in business. They're in every walk of life, right? Greed is not just in business. That's right. You can find that in pretty much every arena of life. So capitalism will never be perfect, because people are never going to be perfect. And we need limited regulations to ensure safety and ensure that people who lie, cheat and steal are basically caught and put in jail. So capitalism is good, and we can make it better, and we can make it more conscious, and we can make our leaders more conscious. Hence
2: why we wrote the two books. And so let's dig into this leadership piece a little bit more, even explaining the idea of win-win-win solutions. I'd love to hear a story or an example. I'm sure you have a myriad of these from your background of how to change your perspective in a way where you can suddenly realize these win-win-win outcomes.
3: So whenever you're faced with a business dilemma, let's take a Whole Foods example, since obviously I know those are the best. In the book, I tell the story of the merger with Amazon. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
3: And Whole Foods had shareholder activists that were trying to take over our company. They were trying to take over the board, and force a sell to the highest bidder. And we didn't think that was in the best interest of all of our stakeholders. So we began to look around for what would be a win-win-win solution here? What would be something that would create value for all of our stakeholders? And frankly, we couldn't come up with a good solution for a long time. And I don't know if you ever experienced this, but sometimes my best ideas that I ever get in my life or pretty soon right after I wake up, I've been dreaming. And it's fresh in the morning. And I'm one of those guys that wakes up pretty fast. And I woke up one morning and it was the win-win-win solution for Whole Foods' the shareholder activist problem just popped in my brain. And it was in the form of a question. What about Amazon? What about Amazon? Would they be interested in maybe partnering with Whole Foods, acquiring Whole Foods? Because it's like, they're not in the food business. I've heard rumors they might want to get in the food business. I'd met Jeff Bezos about a year before and hit it off with him. I really liked him. I've always admired him. He's a very brilliant guy. He's an entrepreneur in his bones and he thinks very, very creatively. And so the more I thought about that idea, the more I began to like the idea. And I started thinking about it through a stakeholder lens. It was like, well, would this be a win for our customers? And three years now into the merger, I can tell you it's absolutely been a win for our customers. We've dropped our prices three times already. We're going to continue to drop them. We've got with Amazon's technology, home delivery and pickup in our stores that I can tell you has gone up over 300% in the last year. I mean, obviously COVID is an accelerant for online growth, but would Whole Foods have been able to do that without Amazon? Uh, doubtful. And they've been able to let us think long-term because dropping your prices is not that easy to do. In the short run, you're going to pay a price for it your same store sales will drop and your profits will drop. But Amazon's enabled us to think long-term again. Was it good for our team members? Absolutely. Within just a few months of the merger, Amazon raised the starting minimum pay throughout the whole company to $15 an hour. At that time, we had about maybe 90,000 people working for the company and 85,000 of them got a raise, not because they were below $15 an hour, but because only a few were below $15 an hour. But, when you raise somebody that's at your lowest level up, you've gotta raise everybody that's above them up too. So it has this ratchet effect all the way up for things. So everybody got pay increases. We didn't lay people off. We've been able to protect jobs. As a result of the merger, we didn't have to close stores down. So it's been a win for our team members. It's been a win for our suppliers. People were worried that we were gonna stop trading with local, in fact, just the opposite. We've increased our business because we've been able to grow, as well as introduce our supply chain to Amazon Fresh, to Amazon Online. And now Amazon's coming out with a new format of retail stores that are going to be branded Amazon. That's not exactly their name, but I'm not going to leak that here. And so those suppliers now have far greater outlets through this merger. Good for our investors. I mean, our company investors got about a 30% 30% premium over what the price would have been prior to the shareholder activists coming in and getting us to do that. Good for our communities, good for the environment. Amazon's got a huge climate change initiative and attempting to be more ethically responsible towards the environment. So every one of our stakeholders won. And thinking through the merger, every other alternative I looked at, I saw some stakeholder group losing. When I looked at Amazon, all I could see were green lights, win, 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 Everybody wins. So that's using that win-win-win framework to make it the most important decision we've ever made in the history of our company was to sell the business to Amazon. And then we did it within the stakeholder framework, and it's been
2: tremendously successful such a fascinating example and to get a little bit of the insight and the inside baseball on your thought process around such a monumental transaction is fascinating you touched on two things that I think are really relevant I wanted to get into one just more of an aside than anything but there's actually a ton of neuroscience around that idea that some of your best ideas come after a period of what they call creative incubation where you sleep or you do something totally different and then you come back to the problem it gives your subconscious the ability to process that information but You touched briefly on something that you extrapolate more on in the book, and I think it's such a great topic that is so undervalued and underappreciated in today's broader marketplace, and that's the power and the importance of long-term thinking. Tell me a little bit more about that.
3: Think long-term is one of the nine chapters in the book, and it's a very important one. It's particularly important in business and particularly in the public marketplaces. There's so much pressure for short-term earnings that... If you stay, if you're a public company, it wears you down over time because if you miss an earnings for a quarter, your stock can get absolutely obliterated. It could drop 50%. I mean, it could just blow up in one day. And the CEO and their management team are at risk of losing their jobs. That forces them to think, how do I make the next quarter? And they begin to narrow their thinking away from the long-term into short-term activities. Again, one of the big wins and for us in merging with Amazon is And Jeff Bezos, in particular, really thinks long-term. And I've seen that over and over again since the merger. They're enabling Whole Foods to think long-term as well. So long-term is very important because you have to make decisions that hopefully will not cost you too much in the short run, but which are gonna pay off for you in the long-term. I'll give you an example. Whole Foods, we've got about 515 stores. And a typical store, when we sign a new lease, we're signing a lease for 20 years usually with some options that go on after that. So we're locked in to pay rent for at least a minimum of 20 years. And that means we better get a location that's gonna flourish over the long-term. We don't think about, is it gonna be successful the first year? Is it gonna be successful in year three, year four, year five, year 10? And that's the question we're always asking as we go through the real estate strategy. What's this gonna look like in five years? We actually draw out financial projections for a 10-year period. And then we have a terminal value and then we can calculate or make an estimate about whether this is going to be a good return or invested capital or not, because we don't want to make investments that are going to not pay off. You want your stores to be successful. You have to think long term. Same thing about people. You have to think long term about your people that you hire, people that you promote and the people you're investing in. You're investing in their training, you're investing in their development. And if they're going to turn over in the first year, then that's a wasted investment. So you have to care enough about your people and invest in them so they're gonna wanna stick around and be with the company over a longer period of time. Also, competitors are innovating in ways that you can't even anticipate. Even as I'm talking, there's people trying to disrupt Whole Foods Market and come up with new solutions to problems we hadn't even thought of yet. And you have to be thinking long-term about how things may shift and change. When I met Jeff Bezos to talk about the merger, one of the first questions he asked me was, I want to reinvent the supermarket business. Can you help me do that? And I said, I've been doing it for the past 37 years. (laughs) But Whole Foods, we could certainly use your help. And we think we can help you as well. So even asking that question is taking a long-term perspective because you can't reinvent the supermarket business in a day or a year, that's a multi-decade type of proposition. But I believe Amazon is going to reinvent the supermarket business and they already have started to do it. Yeah. So those are some examples of long-term thinking.
2: That's a great story. And obviously, you've done a tremendous job of continually reinventing the industry for many, many years. Getting your business off the ground is hard. Take it from us. We've been
3: there. Sit Down Startup is a new weekly podcast from Zendesk. Find out why customer experience is at the heart of success. Zendesk for startups chats with Zendesk leaders, founders, and CEOs in a coffee shop style conversation about starting up when the world is upside down.
2: Catch weekly episodes on Apple, Google, and Spotify. You touched on something that I want to dig into a little more, which is this idea of investing in your people and caring enough about them so that they stick around so that they're successful. One of the things that many, many people have given accolades to Whole Foods for is the incredible culture that you're able to create there. How do you think about creating a culture that really nourishes people's creative thinking and endeavors and gets them engaged and Thinking entrepreneurially,
3: I can I think give you a broad formula for it. Obviously, the devils and the details and how you execute it, but I can give you the basic principles for creating a great culture. First, it starts with purpose. What is the higher purpose of the business? Why does it exist? And is it a purpose that is going to will it be an attractor? Will it be a purpose that people will get excited about and want to work for you? Whole Foods' higher purpose is to nourish people on the planet, and We have been living that purpose for 40 years, and we're still living it. And we draw people into the culture that are attracted to that purpose. And then beyond purpose, next is your core values, the things that are ways that reflect the purpose, the mission of the business, like core values of Whole Foods are to sell the highest quality natural and organic foods, to satisfy and delight our customers, team member growth and happiness suppliers as partners. We took each of the stakeholder groups and that we care about our environment and our communities. So we take each of the major stakeholders and created a core value around them that reflects back to the higher purpose of nourishing people on the planet. And then here's where it gets tricky. So you've got your purpose, you've got your core values, you've got your mission. Then it's how you're going to lead the company. And we call these leadership principles. And if you Google that, you'll see Whole Foods has 17 leadership principles. Amazon's got 14. Amazon did influence our leadership principles. We love them so much. We adopted many of their leadership principles. And then we took some that we thought were a little redundant and combined them, dumped a few that we didn't think fit Whole Foods very well, and then added the ones that were unique to our own company. Because those leadership principles are the way we do things. They're like the scaffolding that you want to build your culture around. So a leadership principle for Whole Foods, for example, that it's not that it's not a culture at Amazon. It's just not in their principles that we added on is empowerment. We believe in powering our people to work. And a corollary of that is it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. One of the things that happens when you get larger is you begin to lose your entrepreneurial spirit because people are afraid they're going to be punished for making mistakes. So at Whole Foods, we say, go ahead. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And we encourage people to experiment. and, And that leads into innovation. So innovation is another one of our leadership principles. So as you go through those leadership principles, systematically, your culture extends out from the leadership principles. And so one of the core values at Whole Foods that leads to our culture, I'm going to underscore this, they all do, but team member growth and happiness, that's a core value of the company. We have a great culture because we genuinely and authentically care about our people. We want them to be happy. We want them to learn and grow. We want them to be fulfilled. And so we build the culture to a large extent around serving our customers but we believe the best way to serve our customers is to make our team members happy if they're happy then they're going to serve the customers better and by growth we mean giving them opportunities to learn and grow become team leaders to get promoted to advance in the company advance in the culture i don't know how many times i've heard the story of team members saying i took a part-time job here for the summer and here i am 10 years later now i'm a store manager because they got hooked on our culture or they liked what we were doing. It attracted them. And cultures tend to perpetuate themselves. Once you have a strong culture, it's like a body's immune system. It recognizes foreign invaders and sends out antibodies to fight them off. Cultures self-maintain themselves if you have a good vigorous culture. So when Whole Foods goes to start a new store, for example, we call it the yogurt metaphor. If you know how to make yogurt, you take a starter culture from already existing yogurt that has living culture in it. And you put it in milk, whether it be dairy milk or almond milk or whatever kind of yogurt you're trying to make. And then you get it at the right temperature and it will transform that milk into yogurt. The culture that you incubate it with will turn it into yogurt. Okay. Same thing. When we open a new store, we try to make sure we have a starter culture in that new store. And that is, A, we want to get the team leaders and the store team leader, as many of them as possible that are already within the company, so that we incent them to move to the new store, because we know how important it is from a cultural standpoint to have veteran leadership in the store. But then we also encourage team members who've just been working for the company for a long period of time, even from different stores. In fact, we like to take culture from different parts of the company, not just have culture from one store, but from several stores. And then you're going to get a unique yogurt flavor as you've mixed that culture up. But then we don't have to do very much more. I mean, we do training, we have our general information guidebook, and we take people through orientation, we take them through training, we take them video training. But inherently, most of the learning that is done from the culture that we're inculcating in that new store. Because when a person comes from the outside, they take their cue from what's already there because they want to fit in. They want to figure out how to get ahead. They want to figure out how to make more money. They want to figure out how to get liked. And so when they first come in, they're highly sensitive usually to the culture, maybe not consciously, but they want to know what's rewarded and what's not rewarded. So it's not easy to set up a good culture, but if you build it around purpose, core values, and good leadership principles. And then here's the other thing. If you're the leader, you have to embody the culture. People pay a lot more attention into how you act than by what you say. And if you don't actually embody the culture, nobody's going to believe the culture is real. They're going to just see you as a hypocrite. So I have to be Mr. Whole Foods. I have to live the values. I'm the one person that can't get away with cheating in a way on the culture. I have to be the culture myself and people look to me and they are looking for the exceptions that are made. And that's not just true of the CEO or the founder, but it'll be true of the other leaders as well, because you have to walk the talk. You have to embody the culture. And Whole Foods isn't perfect, but we do a pretty good job of this. So those are some of the highlights for how you create and maintain and extend a culture.
2: I love the yogurt metaphor and the fact that the word is culture. I'm a grocer,
3: so I use a food metaphor.
2: It's great. No, it's really good. And just even the fact, the simplicity of the fact that the word culture is in both. It's such, Exactly. It's such a profound yet simple way of thinking about the people that you have around shape the culture. It's so obvious. And yet when you master the basic fundamentals, things like that, it's really transformative.
3: Can I add one thing to it that's important? Yes. So cultures are living. They don't stay the same. They do evolve over time. And one of the things with the merger with Amazon, for example, is what Whole Foods has had to do, and is still doing, I might add, we're three years into it. We're trying to decide what aspects of the Amazon culture do we want to take inside of us and transform ourselves? What are the healthiest parts of Amazon that can help Whole Foods to become a better company? And also, what are the parts of Amazon that we don't want to take in? What are our boundaries? What are the parts that are uniquely whole foods that for us to stay whole foods, we can't change? What's core and what's not core? It's interesting because I'm gonna do a retreat with my executive team next week with a facilitator to go over that very question three years into the merger. What is it that's changing that we don't want to change? And what is not changing that we think ought to change? And we're gonna do a deep dive on that one. So cultures have to evolve. I always think about the culture. I feel like no one's been around the whole time except for me. So I have a very unique perspective. And I feel like it's part of my job as like a gardener in a way. What are the parts of our culture that are unhealthy or weeds that need to be sort of plucked out that are dangerous? And what parts of our culture are super healthy that we need to make sure get watered and nurtured and can grow even stronger and healthier? so most entrepreneurs and most leaders take their culture for granted i advise people not to do that don't take your culture for granted it's one of your most important assets or it can be one of your biggest liabilities and it's continually evolving it has a continuity to it a stability to it and yet it is changing and evolving because the world's changing and evolving and the people are changing and evolving and as people's consciousness changes then the consciousness of that collective company is going to change as well. So I'm just arguing, be conscious about your culture, be aware of where it might be falling off or deteriorating, and work to improve that. And that is a very important fact of leadership. Don't take your culture for granted, but continually work to upgrade it and improve it and help it evolve in a very positive direction.
2: Such a great perspective. And you've obviously been living that lesson for a very long time. You touched briefly on team member growth, and I know one of the chapters in the book digs into this concept about how vital you think it is to be continually learning and growing. That's really, in many ways, the fundamental premise of why we even have this podcast to begin with. And so I'm curious on your perspective of the need and the importance for continuous learning and growth.
3: So there are two chapters that are somewhat connected, but they're also different. One of the chapters is called Constantly Evolve Your Team. And in that chapter, we go over how to hire, how to train, how to help people to learn and grow on the team, and also how to fire. At Whole Foods, we have something we call Recycle. So sometimes leaders get promoted above their head, but they got promoted because they were very successful at the job they were doing before. Most companies, when a person reaches this level where they're flailing and they don't succeed, they get fired. At Whole Foods, we think they got promoted because they were successful, and maybe they got promoted a little bit above their head before they were ready for it. So we've created a culture where it's not a bad thing to take a step back to the job at the same level that you were at previously. And we tell a story in the book about a guy that was a store team leader who started with our company at age 21, just started as an ordinary team member, became a store team leader when he was about... 25 or 26, and began to fail at it. And we recycled him. We got him to step back to a team leader position back in the store at a different store. And he took that demotion with the right attitude. He said, how can I learn and grow so that I can become a store team leader again? And a couple of years later, he was a store team leader again. He became one of our best store team leaders in the company. So successful, in fact, that he got promoted to a regional vice president position and then became president of our Southwest region, where he was the president for over 10 years, he retired a year or two ago now, and he's now in the Whole Foods Hall of Fame. So that's a success story of a recycled position. If we just fired him, we would have lost all that growth that he did. So one of the things that you can do if you have a larger company is I do believe in coaching. I do believe in mentorship. In my own case, my father was my mentor for the first. 16 years of the business's history. I fired him at age 40 from being my mentor because Whole Foods had gone public. We were very successful. He'd made a ton of money on his investment and he was retired at that point. So he just didn't want to blow it. I just wanted to grow the company and he wanted to play it safe. So I just decided at age 40 that um, I was done with the mentorship and Whole Foods really took off after that. And that story's in the book. It's a little bit in the Conscious Capitalism book. It's also in the Conscious Leadership book. There's another chapter, though, that's relevant here. And that's a chapter of continuously learn and grow, that the leader has to continuously learn and grow. One of the best ways that you can help other people grow is to grow yourself. It's called the law of the lid. It's very difficult for a company to grow beyond the leader. The leader either helps lift it up to a higher state of consciousness or the leader holds it back. If the leader holds it back, ultimately the company wants to outgrow the leader, and it's time for that leader to get out of the way, and you got to know when it's time to depart. That's forced me, I can tell you, I've held Whole Foods back numerous times from our highest potential. It forced me to learn and grow as a human being, to become more conscious, to become a better listener, to be more awake, and to just stay ahead of the growth of our own organization. So there's individuals growing, and then there's the leader growing. They're both important. And we go into some detail about both of them in the book.
2: I'm curious, how was the conversation and the dynamic with your father when you had to make that pivot?
3: So a little background on that. When I started business when I was 24, I had no business background. If you look at my resume, they were like a boys camp counselor, bus boy, dishwasher, Retail clerk, CEO, Whole Foods Market. That's the only job I've had since I was 24 years old. So I didn't have the business background. I didn't study business in school. In college, I studied philosophy, religion. Basically, I never even graduated. I've got 120 hours of electives, mostly in the liberal arts. And so I've read hundreds of business books. Once I started the business, I realized I don't know anything. And I just began to just swallow up knowledge from every source. My father had been an accounting professor at Rice University when I was a boy. And then he went into business and ended up becoming chief financial officer of an airline company. And then he became CEO of a hospital management company. So he knew a lot about business. And so from age 24 to 40, I never made a major move at Whole Foods without checking with him first, which was really good because I would wreck the company. But I didn't have that. And him as a coach and as a mentor.
2: Oh, how okay. the conversation yes. So, that yeah, was, that's right. great background. Let's dig into the conversation okay. itself. When you yeah. made that change.
3: Well, it was the most difficult conversation I've ever had to have. And it took me quite a while to work up the courage, right? Because I was partly afraid Can I do this without my dad? I mean, is that the right move for the company? But we were fighting all the time in our board meetings. And it was always about the same thesis I want to grow faster. And he just wanted to play it safe because he didn't want to blow it. And he kept saying, What's the hurry? I said, the hurry is the opportunity is there now. We have to grow faster. We have the money. We went public. We have the capital. I want to acquire companies. I want to open new stores. I want to be all over the United States. And he said, we could fail. And I said, we're not going to fail. We've never had a store fail. We're successful. We can do this. I could never convince him. So the conversation was, I went in and I said, dad, I am so grateful for you because where would Whole Foods be without you? We never would have succeeded. You've taught me so much or my dad, I always love you, but I'm 40 years old. I want you to leave the board and I'm still going to talk to you now and then, but I'm gonna start calling the shots myself here. And I remember he told me I wasn't ready that I still needed him. And I said, you're probably right. I still do. I'm still going to talk to you from time to time. I'm not breaking off the friendship. But I said, dad, here's what I want you to do. I want you tomorrow to go sell half your stock in the company. Sell half your stock, And you'll have all the money you'll ever need the rest of your life you never have to worry you're set for life but leave the other half in because we're going to grow this company and that other half's going to be worth a lot more money than the first half you sold but even if i'm wrong you got enough money so that's what he did within one year the stock price had doubled (laughs) after my dad had left and it had a happy ending obviously because whole foods grew grew and grew and grew and grew and grew still growing and my dad made a lot more money with the stock that he kept in than the stock that he took out. And we were friends, and I still got his advice. But it was a huge step for me personally because I did not come into my full power as a leader and as a man until I let that codependent relationship go. It was one of the bravest things I've ever done. It was just firing my dad, basically, as my coach, and my mentor. It was very difficult, but it worked out well for him, me, and the company. Win-win-win everybody won from it.
2: Did you seek out another mentor or how did you fill that void or did you fill it?
3: I didn't seek out another mentor. I sought out peers. I met other CEOs who were dealing with the same kind of problems I was dealing with. Because while you have to have relationship with the people in the company, and I have plenty of people in the company that are my friends, that I love, that I trust, that are wise, that I do run ideas by and give me advice, they still never understand it the same way a person is that's running a company themselves understands it. So that's why you have organizations like YPO. I'm not a YPO guy. They never invited me, (laughs) but I've been parts of other groups of CEOs that meet and talk. So I really encourage you to get together with your peers. And hey, that's one thing conscious capitalism is trying to do. We're trying to create chapters in different cities so we can bring conscious ceos and conscious leaders together to develop those type of relationships where they can help each other
2: thank you for sharing that personal anecdote it's such an interesting dynamic to navigate bringing this conversation back to what we were talking about a moment ago i'm curious for someone who's been listening that wants to take action on what we've talked about in some form or fashion whether it's being a more conscious leader whether it's implementing some of the principles of conscious capitalism (laughs) into their life or their business what would be one action item or a piece of homework that you would give them to begin taking action on these ideas today?
3: To begin taking action. Our book will be out in about six weeks. <laughs> it comes out on September 15th. So I've got a whole book on suggested actions. We actually, in the book, we talk about practices that you can do. In every chapter, practices that you can do to become more conscious in those areas. The areas of purpose, of love. The second chapter of the book is leading with love. Third chapter is about acting with integrity. So there's a ton of things that you can do that we're actually giving you a guidebook to become more conscious as a person and as a leader. If there's one thing I could tell you today is if you don't know your purpose yet as a human being and as a leader, then you need to find that because until you find that purpose for yourself and for your organization, you're gonna always sub optimize because once you align your own life mission with your business, then you're gonna release so much creativity and so much energy, it'll blow your mind. And then after you get that figured out, then the thinking using the stakeholder model and beginning to start trying to think in terms of win-win-win of stakeholders, that's an action you can begin to take right now. Start thinking about how you can create value for all of your stakeholders, that they're interdependent, they're connected together, they're not separate, that you're managing this entire business and trying to create value for all of them. So nobody's losing, everybody's winning. And you know what'll happen? If you start practicing stakeholder theory that way I just articulated it, it'll have a transformative effect on the rest of your life. Because everybody you start interacting with, you'll start acting in a way that you're trying to figure out how they can win. And you're gonna be a good person to be around because you're always gonna be cheering for the people you're with. You're not gonna be envying them. You're not gonna be wishing the worst for them. You're gonna be wishing the best for them. And because you recognize that you're connected to them as well, and their success, to a certain extent, is your success as well, because you're connected together. So practice win-win-win thinking. I'll give you that tip right now. Find your purpose. Practice win-win thinking. That's two tips for the price of one.
2: Perfect. Excellent. And John, where can people find the book, you, your work, et cetera, online?
3: It's online right now, available for pre-order at Amazon. So the title of the book is Conscious Leadership. Elevating Humanity Through Business is a subtitle. And there are two other co-authors. I want to make sure they get credit. Carter Phipps and Steve McIntosh, two good friends of mine who are also authors on their own right. We wrote this together. All three of us did it. It's definitely a group project. Thank goodness, because it's a win-win-win for all three of us. Right. In a sense, I talked about, when you asked me about leadership. If you write a book with somebody else, I have my own ideas, but you've got these people, your teammates, that you're bouncing the ideas off of, and it magnifies, it grows. It's like one person takes your idea and they iterate on it and they give it back to you, and then you iterate on that. It's sort of like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Writing a book is a creative process. So your own mind is being creative. You're thinking of things you didn't realize until you started writing the book. But I found by having a couple of co authors, it's magnified even more so anyway that's where the book is available it'll be sold in bookstores and at Whole Foods Market every Whole Foods Market store'll be selling it probably get your best price at Whole Foods or Amazon because it'll be heavily discounted That'll be September 15th but you can get the queue to have it delivered to you on September 15th from Amazon if you're a prime member you'll get it delivered for
2: free Well John, thank you so much for coming on the show It's truly an honor to have you on here and to hear some incredible wisdom from the amazing and journey that you've had.
3: Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I can't believe a whole hour just passed. I hope our paths cross again, and love to meet you sometime in real life.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.